You're listening to End of the Line on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond. I'm Katie Wood. I'm Matthew Conover. End of the Line is an ongoing podcast about the pipeline struggles in Virginia and the Mid-Atlantic. You go through this whole realm of being angry, of being frustrated, of sometimes being in tears. And we've come at it. In the beginning, I was just a volunteer like everybody else. I was just a community member. Just, I shouldn't say just, but that, you know, I wasn't working for anybody. I was just doing it because I felt like it needed to be done. And the, the, I'm sorry. But the people who, my friend Heidi, it was gonna be within 100 feet of her home. So if it ever were to explode, her whole family would be toast. You know, if it was there, somewhere close to her home. And she's tough. But I can't imagine, because I wasn't in that position. It's never going to be that close to me. You know, if it's ever built, it's never, it's going to be a mile or two from me. Um, But I can't imagine having a family and feeling that fear. You just heard Sharon Ponton, resident of Nelson County, who amongst hundreds of others in Virginia has been fighting Dominion's proposed Atlantic Coast Pipeline, or ACP, for nearly three years. That's a long time. Long enough to know the difference between fact and falsehood. The ACP is a multi-million dollar energy project proposed by Dominion Resources, along with several other partners. It would span nearly 600 miles through three states, from its start in West Virginia to its end in North Carolina. It would cut through 30 miles of national forests, as well as steep slopes through the beloved Appalachian Trail and Blue Ridge Mountains. Pipeline construction on this scale, across this type of steep, well-watered, forested mountain landscape is unprecedented, and the dangers of completion and use of the pipeline are tremendous. If you're thinking to yourself, I've heard about other projects like the Dakota Access Pipeline or Keystone XL, but I haven't heard as much about the ACP. Well, there's a reason for that. The ACP hasn't been approved yet by FERC. That's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that approves all interstate energy infrastructure, like natural gas pipelines. At the time of this recording, the decision on whether or not it will be built is still months away, but the battle's been brewing for almost three years now. If FERC approves their permit, construction would begin in the fall of 2017, so we've got time to catch up. In the coming weeks, End of the Line will be bringing the pipeline stories to you, taking a look at each facet of the ongoing saga, because as you'll find out, this thing is a moving target, and the story is still unfolding. To complicate things further, there's more than just one pipeline proposed to go through our state But we'll get to that, and more, later in this episode. So let's rewind, let's travel back in time to when all of this first started. Well, the thing that happened at the very beginning, I think, is really 
important. We were all strategizing about what we were doing about national forests, and this is in 2014. I was the council chair of Hartwood at that time. Hartwood's a coalition of groups that do the forest protection work. That's Ernie um, Reed. He spoke to us in February of 2017 from the Office of Wild Virginia in Charlottesville. Ernie has been doing forest protection work for two decades. He loves to talk about mountain slopes and unique topographical formations like karst. In the spring of 2014, he had just begun to take a look at the epidemic of pipeline proposals and their impact on forests with another friend, Ryan Talbot. We were sitting there at at breakfast and he's looking at his laptop and he says, oh gosh, Duke Energy just announced a request for proposals for a pipeline. They're calling it the Southeast Reliability Project and it would go from West Virginia, across Virginia, all the way down to North Carolina. And it's clearly going across the Monongahela and the George Washington National Forest. And I said, well, I guess I know what I'll be doing when I get back home, you know, because it was just the very first announcement about that. And then when I got home, there was a letter in my mailbox from Dominion. Dominion and Duke Energy, two of the largest energy companies on the eastern seaboard. We're one of the largest energy companies in the U.S. with a portfolio of approximately 24,600 megawatts of generation. Together, they provide electricity to 12.2 million people. And in 2014, they sent out thousands of letters to folks like Ernie and Sharon, requesting permission to enter property in order to survey for their newly proposed pipeline. When the letters first started coming out in May of 2014, there was the buzz, you know, that, what is this? People kind of ignored it at first because they were, quote-unquote, asking for permission to come on people's property. But if you read the letter closely, it said, we can whether you want us to or not. From the very beginning, that's the way that they approached it. And the letters were from Dominion. The letters were from Dominion, not the ACP. Now, this may seem unimportant right now, but the distinction between Dominion and the ACP will be crucial in future episodes. Dominion Resources is one of four partners of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, LLC. Though Dominion is largely responsible for the ACP, they are two separate entities. Most importantly, the ACP is registered as a limited liability transmission company, not a public utility. That's unlike Dominion Resources, which owns a public utility, Dominion Virginia Power. The distinction is subtle, but critical. The Board of Supervisors had not been informed. The public had not been informed. It came dropping like a bomb out of the sky. The public That's Connie Brennan. She's been a member of the Nelson County Board of Supervisors since 2014. She's been the most vocal board member in Nelson in opposition to the pipeline. Three of us on the board at the time were very, very upset about this pipeline, you know, not just the fact that we didn't know, but also the fact that we weren't getting um, good information and it just seemed like a terrible problem. We decided to have a meeting, a public meeting, and the supervisor sat on one side on a table. We did it at the, at the auditorium. In August of 2014, four months after letters first started appearing in mailboxes, the Nelson County Board of Supervisors held an open meeting in an effort to get more information, both for themselves and for residents. 
Over 600 people showed up from the county and surrounding areas. And Dominion brought 25 people, <laughs> which they piled up on the stage. We asked them questions, and their answers were, well, we're working on that and we'll let you know, or we're not ready to talk about that. And, and from that time on, we as a board have decided we're not meeting with them because we can't, we don't know what they're saying. We don't know what, whether what they're saying is true or not. Even at this early stage, Nelson County residents came with shirts, signs, buttons, already announcing their clear distrust and disdain for the ACP and ready to put up a fight. It was packed, the whole auditorium. I mean, there were people standing up in the back and around the sides because people were just so angry. And, you know, who do you think you are? Over the coming months, the formal process of exchanging information and comments between the public, FERC, and Dominion would begin. In January of 2015, there was a series of open houses, which were set up Sort of like a student science fair, except without the awards at the end. So they had somebody that would talk about safety and another little table that they would talk about soils and another little table that would, you know. Concerned residents had to navigate tiny stations manned by ACP employees. These were not meetings to get information. They were chaotic. Even if you could get to an ACP representative in order to ask them your questions, you had trouble hearing because of how noisy and crowded it was. We're screwed. You guys can't. Don't you get jobs. In the long run, it isn't going to do any good for the United States. Concerned residents who showed up hoping to get clear answers in an organized and orderly fashion probably left feeling dizzy frazzled and confused. For a company wanting to answer questions or deliver information to a large group of people or have common questions answered, this is the least effective format to do so. People were disappointed, people were frustrated, you know, trying to get answers to questions and Dominion would say, oh, we can't answer that. Oh, well, we don't know that. You know, well, it depends on FERC. I mean, there was not a, there was not a clear answer to anything. And they had it set up so if you were a guest or a landowner when you went in um, and you handed them a letter and she said, well, I think you're lucky. You're not on here. You don't need to be here. And I said, well, just because it's not my, not coming across my brother-in-law's property doesn't mean that I don't need to be here because this is going to affect everyone who lives here, whether we're on the actual root of the pipeline or not. Soon after, FERC would hold the first public hearings for the ACP in March of 2015. It was the very last of the true public hearings. Um, FERC will never do another public hearing, and I think we probably had a lot to do with that because I believe it was also at the high school, and we packed the auditorium. It was full of people many comments and of course when you have a real public hearing members of the public go up they get to say their comments everybody gets to hear you get to meet with network with your people 
And it's a, it's a very important event, not just for the agency to get the information, but it's a very important event for the community. There's so much power in people being together for the same thing and the way that the hearings are set up now. The way that so-called public hearings are set up now, each person who wishes to enter comments for the record, speaks not to a packed room with vocal amplification and a podium, but one-on-one -on -one with a FERC staff member seated at a tiny table, deposition style. And then afterwards, they published a transcript of all the statements and everything. And there, there were so many mistakes in there, so many misinterpretations. You know, it's a matter of public record. You can look that up. I mean, it was just ridiculous. In terms of Dominion, it's not in their best interests to provide answers to questions and to provide good information and to engage with uh, the public on things. They know that's not in their best interest. It's been endless, the misinformation and the misstatements and the stuff they don't tell us. I did manage to talk along with Alan Hale. We managed to get, right in the beginning, a resolution from the Board of Supervisors opposing the pipeline. Subsequently, that was the last time we could ever get the board to actually come out and say they were opposed to the pipeline. If you're just tuning in, you're catching End of the Line, the ongoing saga of pipelines in Virginia. I'm Matthew Conover. This is episode one, and we've only just started to get our feet wet in looking back at all that has occurred since May of 2014, when Dominion announced its plans for the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, or ACP. By the way, if you'd like to catch up on this in future episodes, you can find them at soundcloud.com slash pipelinepodcast. We're going to be examining each angle of the pipeline fight, episode by episode, because a lot has happened in three years, and not all of us were there for it. But that's okay. Like we said before, we have time to catch up. Hey Floyd, it looks like we have a pipeline fight on our hands. I remember sitting and listening and like my ears burning and my face getting hot and this physical sense of the injustice of all of this. Earlier on, we mentioned that this is not just about the ACP. There's actually another pipeline proposed to go through the state of Virginia. Another high-pressure, 42-inch natural gas pipeline to be exact. Our land is our livelihood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh. Oh. <laughs> and our kids. Carolyn Riley is a mother of four who along with her husband Ian, her parents and her children operates Four Corners Farm in rural Franklin County. She and her husband co-own the farmland with her parents. It's been a dream of theirs and they've been making it happen since the spring of 2011 with chickens, cows and pigs all raised sustainably and free in their pastures and the creeks that feed them. It's not just their livelihood it's their home. She took us on a tour of the farm and told us how she found out about the Mountain Valley Pipeline, or MVP. For her and her family, it all started with a phone call from Oklahoma. I guess that's the caller ID said, you know, Oklahoma caller. And it was some land guy and telling my dad about this gas pipeline and can we mail you information? And so my dad told us about the call and I'm like, what? You know, what, what do you mean a pipe? Like a gas, natural gas? And 
I was really skeptical. And my Ian was a little like, well, we should at least maybe let them look. And I'm like, I think we need to do some research. Like, we need to find out what's going on. Mike Carter's parents live up the creek, just a five-minute drive from Carolyn's farm. There's three springs along this edge, one of which used to furnish water to this house. The mill used to be right down here around the corner. It's his parents' house, but Mike considers it home as well. He first found out about the pipeline in the paper, and he says he didn't think much of it at the time. When I first read it, I thought, well, that, that'll be good for the county. It'll mean economic growth and jobs here because we were, had lost jobs through the furniture and textile industry. I had no clue it was a 42-inch high-pressure interstate pipeline. If you're wondering why there would be the need for two pipelines that are nearly identical to each other in size, purpose, and scope, and even similar in route, so is everyone else. My dad received paperwork for them early in the fall of that year and didn't say anything to us about it and read it and thought, well, this will be good for the county and I'm going to do the right thing. And he gave them permission to come here, which they did. And then when the man stood out here and told him what they planned on doing, taking out all their trees, running through the floodplain of the creek, possibly destroying that building down there, right in their backyard and the size of it, then he called me and said, you know, I've, I've done a bad thing here. So I found out that there were some landowners that were meeting at the public library, and I took Evelyn, so she was then 11. I remember sitting and listening and feeling this compelling responsibility of I have to do something. Like I can't just go back home and ignore what I'm beginning to learn and understand about the size of this pipeline. It's 42 inches in diameter. At that time our youngest was five. She could walk through that pipeline. She could walk through it without having to duck. She was only maybe 40 inches tall, maybe 38 inches tall. So in there I met Mara Robbins from Floyd County. I met Mert Reeves from Bent Mountain. So Carolyn started meeting other landowners who were feeling the same urge to do something, including Mara Robbins, a writer, activist, and resident of Floyd County. Mara came to the Franklin County Library to tell how she and her neighbors had kicked the MVP out of Floyd. When Mara first found out about the Mountain Valley Pipeline... It was July 9th of 2014. My dear friend Bill Kovarik posted something on our local Floyd group. He said, it looks like we have a pipeline fight on our hands, and posted a document that was intended for investors. They were in the investment phase. It wasn't even a proposed project. So this is July of 2014. In the meantime, the ACP, Dominion's Pipeline, has already been formally announced and residents in Nelson County and elsewhere along the proposed route are quickly getting organized. I didn't know what to do and I found out they were already fighting practically the same pipeline, a 42-inch fracked gas transmission line, and 
they were further along in the process because the investment phase for the ACP was in April of 2014, I think, and then it was June to July for the MVP. In an interesting twist of fate, one of Mara's best childhood friends is married to one of the co-founders of Friends of Nelson, one of the first groups to lead the charge against the ACP. Our very first action was to propose a resolution to our Board of Supervisors that was basically the same one that Friends of Nelson did, demanding that the companies that were proposing the MVP have a meeting with our local Board of Supervisors before anything else happened. Because at the time, surveyors were going up and knocking on people's doors. There were people in Floyd that were being like, we need to, I know, it's so early on in the process, it's really bizarre, isn't it? But they hadn't contacted our local government. Nobody had said anything. Like when we went to the Board of Supervisors, we educated them. They were clueless. They were mad because they had this past experience with Dominion doing very similar things, underhanded backdoor deals. If this sounds familiar, it's because Connie Brennan of the Nelson County Board of Supervisors expresses a similar frustration in the first half of this episode. There was a pipeline in the early 2000s that had tried to come through Floyd. The company that was trying to bring the Greenbrier pipeline through Floyd in the early 2000s was Dominion. So we were fighting Dominion. It's not often mentioned, but from 2001 to 2003, Floyd County residents faced Dominion's Greenbrier pipeline a project very similar to the ACP. The Greenbrier Pipeline had already received its final permits from FERC in 2003 and was almost to construction phase, but something unexpected stopped it in its tracks. Ultimately, with the Greenbrier, what happened that took it down was that a journalist in West Virginia discovered that one of their primary investors had fallen out from under them. They didn't have the buyer at the other end of the line, and they had not reported that to the FERC. Dominion had not. Yep. They had not reported that information. So when the FERC found out... When FERC found out, they basically told Dominion, well, if you're not getting paid, then we're not getting paid. So you're done. We won the Greenbrier fight, but we, we won in part because of Dominion's carelessness and because of our persistence in continuing to dig up information. The lessons learned by Mara and her Floyd County comrades would pay off again almost a decade later while fighting the Mountain Valley Pipeline. In October of 2014, folks in Floyd County won an early victory when it was announced that the MVP would be rerouted to just outside Floyd's northernmost boundary. Mara Robbins credits this to the fact that MVP stakeholders were in no way prepared for Floyd County's swift and highly organized opposition. But she's quick to point out that Preserve Floyd was not alone. Our friends in Nelson County helped build this fight with us. We didn't have to reinvent the wheel because they had already written this resolution. Why should we rewrite it? Let's just share. And, and that's what we agreed on. 
we won a battle, but we didn't win the war. The pipeline still proposed, it's still trying to come through, and it would still affect us if it was built. Floyd County's in the blast zone. Floyd County's water would be affected by a leak, a breach, whatever, even by construction because of the nature of our water system here, which is very complex and very fragile. We asked Mara and others what they think about the notion that both the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and the Mountain Valley Pipeline are essentially done deals. Who have they heard say that? And do they think it's true? Who have you heard that from? Oh my God, everybody. I mean, even from the very beginning. Richard Averitt lives in Nelson County. He and his family are prepared to fight Dominion's ACP for the long haul. And they've heard done deal from literally every entity in the state of Virginia. Dominion is certainly messaging that at every time. The governor is messaging that all the time. Our senators, Kane and Warner, they basically say it's out of their hands, which is crap. We, we called 130 of our elected officials in the state of Virginia, and they said things like, Dominion owns this state. Um, we're, I'm going to do whatever Dominion wants. You're wasting your time. You'll never beat them. I mean, these are our elected officials. I think that was the hardest part for me because I always felt like, especially being so active, that if you went and talked to people and explained and had good reasoning and good judgment and facts to back you up, then they should respond favorably. And in this case, they have not repeatedly over and over and over. And what is there to talk about? You know, what could we say? Well, uh, maybe you should move it over here, over there. Can you imagine us doing that? As soon as we do that, somebody else will be on our back saying, What? You wanted to move it over to my property? You know, it's all, it's a, it's a terrible conundrum, really. You know, we are conditioned to look out for our own interests, you know. Our goal was not to stop the pipeline. Our goal was stop the pipe lines. It's all proposed. Not a done deal. I mean, it's patently absurd. This is not the America I grew up in. You know, I grew up in a country where property rights are sacrosanct, where citizens take precedence over corporations. We've gone totally off the rails. And I'm telling you right now, Governor McAuliffe and Dominion, you will not cut a tree on this property before you take me away in handcuffs. And I won't be alone. So this doesn't end here. More to come in the next episode of End of the Line. This episode produced by Katie Wood and Whitney Whiting with support from Matthew Conover and Aaron Bish. Special thanks to Sharon Ponton, Ernie Reed, Connie Brennan, Mara Robbins, Carolyn Riley, Mike Carter, and Rick Averett. Thanks to Morgan at WRIR, Marilyn Shiflett, Chris Dahman, Lainey Sullivan, and the Know Something Collective. Music on this episode by Rustroy. Find the full EP at milkfactoryproductions.bandcamp.com. Music also by Lobo Marino. Find them at lobomarinomusic.com.
in the next episode of End of the Line. When there's active surveying going on on the mountain, none of us will leave our property because you, you, don't, you don't want to risk them coming onto your property because they know when you're gone. I don't know how they know, but they know. This doesn't make sense to me. I can't understand why you would do this to people. They want to show up. They want to intimidate you. They want to convince you that you can't do anything about it, that you might as well just obey. But when you go to battle or you're a tribe, the success of that tribe or the success of that unit is that we each got each other's back. And so the survival of that unit is I can depend on you because the common goal is survival, that we are in this together. We want to succeed. We want the strength as unity.